0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Amy Frost of the Bath Preservation Trust will be providing a detailed biography of William Beckford. As well as investigating his work, the lecture will reveal the inspirations behind the designs and the magnificent collection he housed within them. So, William Beckford is very well known for a a series of things and When you ask different people, they will know him for different reasons. So if you talk to a landscape historian, they'll know him because of the great uh, progress he made in particularly the picturesque and in landscape design. Talk to someone who studies literature and they'll know him as a writer of a great Gothic novel. One of the second um, or the second Gothic novel written in in English literature. Um, Talk to... a an art historian, and they'll know him as this great picture collector, a uh, decorative art historian, they'll know him as a great furniture commissioner. Um, but for me, being primarily an architectural historian, um, all of these things have great significance, but it's perhaps his buildings for which he's most well known. So what I want to do is sort of take you through the, the buildings that Beckford either constructs or makes additions to, Leading up to his time here in Bath and give you a bit of an insight into the the, uh, inspirations behind them, where he gets his ideas from, but also what those buildings in turn then influence in terms of the development of British aesthetics in particular. So, before we sort of really get into the buildings, I'll give you a a very brief biography of Beckford. Um, He's born in 1760, and um, as the introduction said, he was born into immense wealth. He was the fourth generation of the Beckford family that had interests in sugar planting in Jamaica, which is an incredibly polite way of saying all the money comes from the slave trade. And his Great grandfather was the first Beckford that had been to Jamaica, had established essentially the family business. And by 1710, the first Beckford in Jamaica was worth a million and a half in the bank. And that's 1710. So it gives you a kind of idea of the amount of money that we're dealing with. He, Our Beckford, as I said, is the fourth generation. His father, Alderman Beckford, also called William Beckford, and he he plays a role in in the story I'll tell you this evening, um, was essentially the first generation of his family to come back to England and be educated in England. So Beckford's father went to Westminster School and then Balliol College. He actually trained as a doctor. He was the second son. But he inherited when his brother died and effectively made the Beckford plantations in Jamaica incredibly profitable, even more profitable than his father and grandfather before him had done. And then he uses that wealth to come back to England and carve a position for the family in British society. So he makes a very advantageous marriage. He marries into the family of the Duke of Hamilton. And he gets immense power for the family through politics. So Alderman Beckford is twice Lord Mayor of London. Um, very, very influential Whig politician. Uh, best friends with Pitt the Elder. Pitt the Elder is actually our Beckford's godfather. So hugely influential family in terms of power, in particular power in the city of London. And of course the key thing that this family needs is an estate. Because in the 18th century... Um, The symbol of power, no matter how much you can have politically, no matter how much wealth you can have, the symbol of power is still in the ownership of land. And more importantly for particularly people like the Beckfords, it's in the buildings you build on that estate. So the country seats, the mansions that are essentially the status symbol of your uh, wealth, of your ownership of that land. And Alderman Beckford is a rather infamous character. Um, he was brash, arrogant, spoke in uh, Parliament with a Jamaican accent, um, was ridiculed in caricatures because of openly having two illegitimate families. Um, Alderman Beckford openly acknowledged 13 illegitimate children. So he gave his name to, in public, 13 illegitimate children. Um, so there was already quite a, a, a sense of celebrity about the Beckford family. And then our Beckford, William Thomas Beckford, was born in 1760 as the only legitimate child. And when his father died in 1770, he effectively became, for a rather short period of time, but he became the richest person in England. And Byron, when he writes Child Harold, writes that Beckford is England's wealthiest son. And to give you an idea of the kind of money he had, up until about 1802, he was getting an annual income that fluctuated from between 35 and about 50,000 pounds a year and as well as this infamous a million and a half in the bank so it's a, a, an immense amount of money and Beckford is being groomed to be the English gentleman. He's a nouveau riche family. He's being groomed to essentially elevate the family into the peerage. So the ambition of his mother, his godfather, his guardians is that he will get a baronetcy that his father missed out on getting. So he has this incredible education, but for our, from our point of view, for what we're looking at this evening, the key things about his education are is he's taught by Alexander Cousins, the artist. And Alexander Cousins becomes Beckford's great mentor in terms of aesthetics. He's telling Beckford what to read. He's telling Beckford what pictures to look at when he's a young boy. Um, He travels with Beckford on part of his grand tour. Um, His son, John Robert Cousins, then goes with Beckford as Beckford's artist in residence when Beckford travels in Europe. So Cousins is this great influence on Beckford's aesthetic ideas. And the second... um, Part of his education that's incredibly important is Beckford claims he was taught architecture by Sir William Chambers. There is absolutely no evidence for this in the William Chambers archive. There isn't actually much of a William Chambers archive, but um, there's no evidence that he has any dealings with Beckford at all. It's purely Beckford telling us. And um, as June said, there are lots of myths in Beckford's life, and most of them he actually makes up himself. So I have a feeling this myth about William Chambers might be one that he generated himself. And I think he generated it because Chambers is the architectural tutor to the Prince Regent. And it is a sign of the best education that money could buy. So whether we believe it or not, it's slightly uncertain. He did own a, a copy of every publication that Chambers ever wrote, but, um, but so did lots of gentlemen, so we can't really prove it. Um, but key to Beckford and his architectural development is both the estates that his father purchased, what his father did on that estate, but also, very importantly, the travels that Beckford makes through Europe. So this is his 21st birthday portrait painted by George Romney in 1781. And I always think of it at Upton House in Warwickshire. It's within the National Trust collection now. Um, I always think of this as Beckford's greatest piece of PR. Um, It presents this incredibly talented, incredibly educated, very, very charismatic young man. Um, By the age of 17, Beckford could speak seven languages fluently. He could read and translate Sanskrit. So he's wickedly intelligent. Um, And he presents this image of himself. I always like the irony of this in that Beckford was two inches taller than I am. So this picture makes him look incredibly masculine, very, very um, charismatic. He was actually quite thin. Um, and spoke with a slightly high-pitched, affected voice. Um, unlike me today, I'm rapidly losing my voice, so you'll have to excuse me. But, um, uh, so he spoke a much higher pitch than I do. Um, and it's, he's very aware of image, and he's very aware of the uh, image he presents to the public, in particular, and he presents to his peers, in particular. So this is a 21st birthday portrait; is very important. Um, before he turned 21, Beckford had been on a a two-and-a-half-year grand tour. He'd spent an awful lot of time in the Swiss Alps. And he'd spent a lot of time in the Swiss Alps with painters, writers, poets, the kind of people that are at the birth of Romanticism in Europe, really. And he's immersing himself in particular in the writings about the power of the natural world on human emotions. So he starts to develop a highly sophisticated aesthetic from a very early age. He then travels, as with all grand tourists, extensively through the Low Countries and extensively through Italy. But the visit that has the biggest impact in terms of what we're looking at is that when he's in the Swiss Alps, he makes a visit to the Grand Chartus, so the um, Cartusian monastery at the centre of the Alps. And this visit has a huge impact on Beckford. He talks about the approach to the building, seeing the towers of this building um, as you approach it through the hills and the sweeping power of nature around this building. So it's very important for him, this, this period in his life. He then comes back to assume all the responsibilities of essentially being the head of this immense family business. His wife has been picked for him. His seat in Parliament has been purchased for him. He has this um, huge weight of responsibility that that he's about to assume essentially after um, this painting is is created. Um, He spends the early part of his life on his father's estate. So in 1744, Alderman Beckford had purchased the Fonthill estate in Wiltshire, which is about 12 miles this side of Salisbury. Um, It's it's between the villages of Hindon and the town of Tisbury. Um, The best way to explain where it is is if you know the A303, the shortcut you try and take to avoid Stonehenge. uh, You go right through Beckford country. Um, And the alderman had purchased the Jacobean mansion, a bit of a hodgepodge mansion, that he very quickly made alterations to. And this engraving shows you the alterations that Beckford's father made. So primarily what he did is refaced the Jacobean house with a Palladian elevation. Um, he also knocked down the parish church, which used to be here. Knocked down the parish church and built a new one over here. Um, so he, the Alderman Beckford is very aware of what a uh, mid-18th century gentleman of wealth and taste should be doing. What he should be building, what he should be collecting. Um, in 1755, this house then burns down. And the Alderman replaces it with this. Um, Very typical mid-18th century Palladian mansion, about twice the size of of, uh, Stourhead, so pretty big uh, country house. Um, Very frustratingly, we don't know who the architect was. It's so undoubtedly architect-designed, but probably a sort of local provincial architect rather than any of the big hitters from London. Um, but it is uh, very much within the, the mid-18th century Palladian style, with these two rather substantial pavilions either side of it. So this is the house that Beckford essentially grows up in, um, although he's spending quite a lot of time in the family house in Harley Street in London as well. And he doesn't... Uh, go away for his education when he's a young child so he spends his formative years being educated in this house largely and it's this house that's really the first building that has the greatest impact on him in terms of Beckford starting to think about or commission architecture Um, And the first thing he does is for his 21st birthday party, he commissions the um, romantic artist and set designer, Philip de Lautherberg, to design a sequence of rooms on a single corridor on the ground floor of this house. So this is the um, elevation as uh, engraved in Vitruvius Britannicus. So it was very much within the canon of of 18th century Palladianism, this house. Um, Here's the, the, the two plans. Uh, of the house that was also printed in Vitruvius Britannicus. Um, So effectively what Beckford does is has this corridor created, very um, elaborate, very decadent uh, uh, space within which he has a rather infamous 21st birthday party. But essentially what it is, is a sequence of rooms on a single axis. This becomes very important, this basic idea of a sequence of separate rooms that are united on a single axis, a bit like an enfilade, but not quite an enfilade, um, in the country house kind of sense of, of, of the layout of rooms and planning of rooms. Um, and he has this rather elaborate birthday party, off the back of which he supposedly sits down, doesn't sleep, eat or drink water for three days and writes Vathek, the Gothic novel, in French, because he believes French is the most expressive language. Um, there's a great misconception. A lot of people that read Vathek think that because it is a Gothic novel and it has pages of sheer Gothic brilliance in description of a building, in particular at the end, um, people assume that the inspiration for this novel was Fonthill Abbey because Hill Abbey is this great Gothic revival house. Fonhill Abbey wasn't even an idea in his mind when he wrote Vathek. He wrote it in 1781. So the inspiration behind it is this house and the experience that he has at this 21st birthday party, but also the idea that the sublime, which is key to Gothic, can be found in a classical building as much as it can be found in a Gothic building. It's very important, this 21st birthday party. Um, After the party, Beckford continues collecting and bringing his collection into his father's house, um, and Then a sequence of events occurs in his life that sort of changes Beckford um, quite dramatically. He's due to become Baron Beckford of Fonthill in the October of 1786. And in the September of 1786, the great Beckford scandal occurs. Um, The Beckford scandal is 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 one of these rather uh, very loosely gossipy scandals. Essentially... Beckford from the age of 19 had been wildly in love with William Courtney, the heir to the Courtney family at Powderham Castle in Devon. Um, And... Uh, he'd written a a series of um, uh, uh, rather uh, indiscreet love letters to Courtney and we have evidence of this relationship. Bearing in mind at the same time Beckford is is having um, uh, relationships with women as well. He's having a rather high-profile affair with his cousin Peter Beckford's wife. Um, So really uh, um, historians refer, we refer to Beckford as being bisexual at at this point in his life. Um, He's has this great passion for William Courtney, although by the time Beckford and his wife are travelling, and and he's married by this point in 1786, they're travelling the West Country in 1786 and they stay at Powderham Castle. And how Beckford writes about Courtney at this time, it's very obvious that Courtney has fallen out of favour with Beckford. But the story goes, as the newspapers reported it, that William Courtney's tutor was seen rushing from a room um, in great distress having seen something that he couldn't mention inside that room. That's about the extent of the evidence for the Beckford scandal. Um, Bearing in mind at this time, sodomy is a hanging offence. So homosexuality is a hanging offence at this time. And if a case can be brought against you, um, you can be tried. And it's why so many... um, Uh, sons of of families uh, fled to Europe there's no evidence against Beckford but the gossip is so strong in London all it takes is one paper to say Mr B Mr C or some scandal and that's it his reputation is completely destroyed and Beckford and his wife exile themselves abroad and they exile themselves abroad to Switzerland and it's Switzerland that Beckford had a great affinity for Then after the birth of their second daughter, Beckford's wife dies. This is the great turning point in his life. After his wife's death, he no longer has relationships with women, um, and he becomes increasingly misanthropic um, and reclusive. It's a mistake, however, to think that he becomes one of these very bitter recluses. He's not. He can be incredibly generous, um, and he does spend a lot of time in the public eye, um, but he never quite has the same openness that he had before. So he essentially spends 10 years roaming Europe. And it's these 10 years that are incredibly important. And while he's abroad, he commissions through his mother, the architect John Soane, to make alterations to his father's house. And in particular, um, this corridor here. Um, You see this corridor here that has the sort of um, shaped planning to it. Um, And what Beckford does is commissions Soane to design a top-lit picture gallery. Because while he's in Europe, he's ferociously collecting pictures. Beckford was one of the first great British collectors of early Italian old master paintings. Um, Although, unfortunately for us, in subsequent generations, most of what Beckford believed were old masters have been proven not to be. Um, but um, with the exception of a few uh, uh, incredible pieces, uh, Beckford owned an amazing um, uh, Bellini. Um, so what he does is commissions Sone, who is... At the beginning of his career, he's not quite a, um, a novice, but Soane is not quite the great um, architect that, that he becomes. And he commissions Soane to design this gallery. And this is the uh, early design by Soane for, for the gallery. And then this is the worked up drawing. Um, and for the Soane buffs among us, um, it is the first time that Soane uses the canopy dome or the pendentive dome. Um, the dome that he, he really uses as a signature motif within his work. Um, it's never built, this gallery, um, but, um, but it is the, the first instance in Soane's architecture of that particular kind of dome. And also what we effectively have is a corridor built to have um, a progression, uh, um, projections and recessions to give it an idea of different spaces, but on a single axis at the end of which on a plinth stood a statue. So it's the same idea as that 21st birthday corridor, sequence of rooms um, to make on a single axis. What sewn at the same time also designs, which apparently was made, um, was a great state bed for Fonthill um, House, um, which apparently was made and eventually was sold to an actor in Bath although the the trail runs cold after that. We can't quite find where it went. Um, Very obviously based on the Choragic Monument of Lysicrates in Athens, so based on a a Greek monument that we will see reoccur later on in Beckford's architectural career. Um, So Sone is making these designs for Beckford, but dealing with Beckford's mother, not with Beckford himself, because Beckford is abroad at this time. And very little of it was actually created. But it shows that Beckford is already planning on coming back to Fonthill. He's planning on coming home. Um, and he does eventually return um, in the 1790s. This is actually a, a painting from 1791 of Fonthill House while Beckford um, is in occupation. This is when Beckford returns. And um, this house in Beckford's time became known as Fonthill Splendens because of the splendid things it contained And he'd got rid of or siphoned out a lot of his father's objects because they weren't to his taste. And he was increasingly bringing in his own. And he was making alterations to it, not just by Soane, but also by James Wyatt. And Beckford is coming back to England in the 1790s and then going back to Europe. Um, in particular, he's coming back to bring back things that he bought from the sale of aristocratic houses in the, during the French Revolution. Bedford was one of the only collectors that managed to get a lot of what he bought back into England. So he increasingly needs space to display this collection that he's creating. Comes back to his father's house permanently in 1796, really, um, and starts commissioning James Wyatt to make alterations to that Palladian mansion. This is the John Hopner portrait of Beckford in about 1800, so when Beckford is 40. um, And we currently have this at Beckford's Tower on loan. It's it's my favourite portrait of Beckford. But it quite clearly shows him in the great hall of his father's house. So you can see these very large columns in the background. Um, And in 1800, his thoughts have turned away from his father's house onto building a house for himself. Initially, when he returned to the Fonhill estate, he wanted to complete a building project that his father had started, which was a triangular tower on the highest point of the estate called Stock Beacon, which was under the Alderman Beckford undoubtedly to rival Alfred's Tower at Stourhead. Um, the Haws at Stourhead were the closest rivaling family to the Beckfords at Fonten Hill, And you can very much imagine Beckford's father, this very brash, arrogant, very powerful politician, looking at the whores' estate, who are mere bankers, even though they are bankers, who could break the crown, um, and thinking, well, my estate is going to be even more important than that one. Um, And so he was building this triangular tower to, to rival Alfred's Tower. Then Beckford changes his mind, and he and James Wyatt start working on a garden building on the estate, which Beckford refers to as a little convent in the woods. And in 1798, 1799, there is a whole raft of craftsmen, artists, painters that are staying at Fonthill. So um, the artist John Warwick Smith is at Fonthill, James Wyatt is at Fonthill, doing some plans, doing some drawings. And in 1799, a particular um, Turner goes to Fonthill and is commissioned by Beckford to create six watercolours of Fonthill Abbey under construction. And in the sketchbooks of Turner, you get, um, alongside the views of Fonthill Abbey, this fantastic sketch of Hill Splendens. Um, and it's the sketch of Beckford's father's house from the back, so essentially from the top of the ridge of where Fonthill Abbey was being constructed. And while Hill Abbey, while Beckford is essentially playing around with Fonthill Abbey, his intention is still to live in this house. James Wyatt is making alterations to this house while Beckford is building this little convent in the woods. So the intention was always to remain in this mansion. And then in 1799, at the end of 1799, he starts complaining about how damp this house is and uses this dampness um, as an excuse to essentially start thinking about knocking it down and moving into the house that he himself is building. Um, And eventually he does knock Fonthil Splendens down. He knocks it down in 1807, leaving just this one pavilion, which becomes the guest wing, so this is where um, particularly his children stay when they come and visit. But what you can see in this engraving is the um, parish church that his father built, which has now gone. This has now been demolished. Um, and eventually this house becomes this. It's altered by Papworth. Um, and then eventually um, it's in the 1840s. It's altered, altered by T.H. Wyatt um, into this sort of Italianate villa. And then it's knocked down in the 1920s. Um, Font Hill Estate has had six significant houses on it. They've all either burnt down, fallen down or been pulled down. Um, and not just to the level of Fonthill Abbey, there was uh, um, a Scots baronial house by William Byrne, the Papworth and Wyatt house. There was an incredibly significant arts and crafts house by Detmar Blow that was demolished in the 1960s. Um, so they've all been by the leading architects of their time. Um, so it's an incredible estate to research, really. Um, so essentially, to give you an idea of where we are, this is where Fonthill Splendens was. This is where Beckford's father's house was. You can just see the pavilion there. Um, this is where he was going to build the tower, or his father started to build the tower. And then this is where Beckford is building his little convent in the woods um, that becomes Hill Abbey. The most influential experiences of, of Beckford's um, life in terms of his appreciation of Gothic came not from travelling the Gothic buildings in England... In fact, he's incredibly uh, derogatory about places like Salisbury Cathedral. Um, it's actually from the Gothic that he sees in Europe and in particular the Gothic that he sees in Portugal. So as well as seeing the Grand Chartus, um in, in uh, Switzerland, he spends a lot of time in Sintra in Portugal. And his visits to the monasteries of Alcabasa, and this is um, Alcabasa here, and in particular um, Batala, have a huge impact on Beckford's ideas about the Gothic and his ideas about um, this kind of architecture when he comes back and starts building in the Gothic revival style with James Wyatt. And by 1799, by the time Turner is at Hill, the building has already partly been constructed. Um, and so the bit of the building that's constructed by the time Turner visits is this piece here. So it's the southern range, which was the first bit to be built, which was actually built of a a wooden structure filled in with rubble and covered with what James Wyatt called compost cement, which is essentially concrete. Um, And so it was a, a, um, a very ephemeral building. It was built as a garden building initially. Then he starts building the Great Western Hall here and starts thinking about a tower. And at that point, it stops becoming this garden building and increasingly becomes something that he considers living in. So this is one of the um, James Wyatt uh, uh, designs for Hill in 1799 um, with this idea of a very long cloister here with a a courtyard behind it and this immense tower. Um, This one isn't built. This is the second design with the tower, slightly smaller north uh, wing, um, but an even taller tower. We've estimated, or we've kind of worked out, that this tower is about 600 foot um, in design. If you think Salisbury is, I think Salisbury is, what, 450, 460? Um, so it's, it's huge. Um, and, and it's to rival Salisbury. I mean, he, he's so um, scathing about Salisbury, it's undoubtedly because he's jealous. Um, and so this, this building, and it's while this idea is being constructed that the building falls down for the first time. Beckford says, oh, we'll build it again, build it again. So the second design is this one, and this is a painting by Turner that's in Bolton art gallery. And um, the top or the tower of this, um, this rather sort of strange uh, uh, um, tower with flying buttresses, is based on a mausoleum at the monastery of Batala. So it's an almost identical quotation of, of the mausoleum um, that Beckford had seen, but also that there were lots of engravings of being published in England at that time. This building then falls down again um, for the second time, and Beckford says, oh, build it again. Um, and at this point, he starts thinking, right, we're going to have to build this in stone. And so they start recasing the concrete and wood building with cut stone from particularly Chilmark quarries um, and quarries that are also on the Fonthill Estate. Um, And... This is the point at which Turner is then um, visiting Hill, and the Turner sketches are incredible for many reasons, not just because they give a, an insight into the construction of this building, in particular this one where you can see the wooden structure, the internal structure of the tower being constructed, also, it's very, very rare at this date to actually have drawings of buildings under construction. So outside of their, their importance to the history of Beckford, in terms of architectural history, they're very important because they show this sort of construction method um, uh, being undertaken. So by, long, by about 1800, um, between 1800 and 1804, um, the bulk of this uh, this part of the abbey is, is being built so here's the original part the first bit to be built by 1804 the northern range has been built this, this bit here on the um, left um, and increasingly Beckford is thinking about moving into here permanently and in 1804 he starts writing again about knocking down Fonte Hill Splendens. and then in 1807 when, at which point the building has got to about this stage here he's run out of money completely <laughs> And if you think he's had that immense amount of income, by 1807 he's completely run out of money. And it's a combination of um, being totally swindled by his solicitors um, and his stewards in Jamaica. They keep selling mortgages that Beckford owns to each other and pocketing the profit and not telling Beckford how much they uh, sold them for. Um, He's also been very much hit, quite dramatically hit in 1807 by the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. And because his income from Jamaica is almost ground to a halt, he has to stop building the Abbey and start selling off pictures so that he can get money back in to finish building the tower. Construction on the tower starts up again in 1808. Um, And then in 1812, he gets a huge injection of capital because um, it becomes increasingly difficult for about six months of the year to get Indian sugar. So West Indian sugar suddenly skyrockets in value, and Beckford builds the eastern transept, this bit on the back, um, at the end of 1812, beginning of 1813, um, and finishes off the tower as well. The key thing about the tower is that above these windows here, James Wyatt reverts back to just wood filled in with rubble and covered with concrete, and he does that to make it lighter. Um, and because Beckford is so impatient, he wants it built yesterday. He supposedly hired every team of builders in Wilkshire to work around the clock. They worked at night by lantern so that it could be built even quicker. Um, and Beckford writes these incredible letters about you should see the scene here at night. Um, uh, buckets of, of hot coal is being hoisted up. There are hollers and shouts from the craftsmen. It's like a great Pyranesian scene of hell. Um, brilliantly descriptive about the construction of the building. And then the next day he writes that they're making so much bloody noise he can't sleep and he wishes they'd go home. So um, it takes up his entire life. He's he's writing virtually every day um, to various people. So we have a great account of the construction of this building. Um, He loves James Wyatt one minute. He absolutely hates James Wyatt the next and, of course, what then happens is in 1813, James Wyatt dies in a carriage accident going between Fonthill um, and... Um Doddington Park in in South Gloucestershire, that he's building at the exact same time that he's building Fonhill Abbey. Um, And also, Wyatt is never really there. I mean, Wyatt is working on 5 million projects, so it's not really Wyatt that's in charge of this project. It's the Master Mason, and to a certain extent, Beckford himself, um, that's in charge of this project. So Fonhill Abbey was a, a vast undertaking. The tower was 282 foot high, but the key thing about the building was this central corridor. So a single corridor that was, um, there are varying accounts. Some of the books say that it was, uh, or some of the guidebooks like this one, this is um, uh, John Rutter's book. Um, Some of them say that the central corridor was 320 foot, others say it was 380 foot, but it was probably about 320. And it's this corridor that runs along here. So once again what you have is a sequence of rooms on a single axis making up a single corridor that ends with this space here where there was a statue at the end. So the, the, the traditional Beckford method at this point. So this is the floor plan of the principal floor of Fonhill Abbey. Um, And of course, the key thing about this building is you don't build a building like this, make it look like a cathedral, call it an abbey um, uh, accidentally. I mean, the whole point is what he wants is people to think that his family have owned this estate since the dissolution of the monasteries. So it's all about associationalism. And that's what the Gothic revival is very much about. It's about associating your family. And your ownership of land to what's seen as being this great glorious age of uh, the Middle Ages, this great um, golden age of British history. It's very much about association. That's why you get things like Alfred's Tower. At Sirencester Park, you get a building that at one time was called Arthur's Seat, then it was Alfred's Seat, then it was Alfred's Cottage. So all these associations, it's what's seen as both the mythical age of the Middle Ages, but also this great period of Alfred and the uniting of the country. So it's, it's very intentional what he's doing with this building take you on a bit of a whistle-stop tour through Font Abbey. Um, this is the best picture of Font Abbey that we have. This is the section drawing of Font Abbey that John Rutter did in 1823. Um, and so you have a 38-foot high entrance door with huge oak doors that Beckford employs his three-and-a-half-foot-high dwarf Piero to open to make them look even bigger. Bearing in mind he never really invites anyone to visit. so um, We know that Beckford turned down virtually every application for country house visiting. So, that, you know, the, the, the way that you could apply to the housekeeper when the family weren't at home and you could go and visit the house. Beckford turns virtually every application down. And yet there's this fantastic story about William Banks at Kingston Lacey jumping the fence, being shown around by the gardener, and then being chased out by dogs. And then when he gets back to Shaftesbury, where he's staying in an inn, they tell him, once he describes the gardener, they tell him, well, no, that's, that wasn't the gardener, that was Beckford. So um, you were only allowed in through this great portal if Beckford thought you were worthy of appreciating this collection. Which meant that most of the accounts of people visiting here before Beckford sells it are very much from art historians, artists, architects, writers, collectors. Very much people that Beckford felt comfortable with. Because he's still a social outcast. But um, if you were ever invited here, you would fall over yourself to go there. You would never invite them to your house. But but if you got a chance to go within the walls of Fonhill Abbey, you would tell everyone you'd ever met that you'd been there. So um, 38-foot entrance doors going into the Great Western Entrance Hall, um, which has this incredible ceiling designed by by James Wyatt, um, into which uh, are carved emblems from both Beckford's coat of arms and this is Beckford's coat of arms that he lodges with the College of Arms in about 1814. Um, he employs a full-time herald to research his family's history, claims he's descended from every baron that signs Magna Carta um, and that is very much tied up with the fact that the scandal occurred the months before he was due to elevate the family into the peerage. kind of makes... Tries to spend the rest of his life making up for it, and then when he's living in Bath in 1838, he writes a book called *The Liber Veritatis*, or *The Book of Truth*, um, in which he writes about all these horrible people that are buying themselves titles and making up titles and. Um, so he was uh, rather changeable, Beckford. Um, and the coat of arms becomes very important because he uses it in a lot of his designs for furniture and objects. But also, um, this is the table of arms in Rutter's book on Font Hill Abbey of all the arms that were carved into that roof in the entrance hall of Font Hill Abbey. So essentially, it's a baronial hall. So all these ideas of association, here is this great baronial hall of this great family, even though it was only built last week. This is how important they are. These are all the connections this family can claim. And the design of it was based on this, which is the original ceiling of um, Westminster Hall. So the the only (coughs) part of Westminster, um, of the Palace of Westminster, to survive um, really intact, the the, the great fire in the 1830s. Um, And James Wyatt uh, the other house that, that James Wyatt... Oh, I put it in. Good. Um, uh, this is the Hall of Ashridge Hall um, that James Wyatt also designed. So this is the closest way to sort of give you an idea of what this great hall um, at Fonhill would have looked like. Up the stairs from the hall, you would go into the central octagon, which sat below the tower. Halfway up the tower, there was this gallery that Beckford called the Nunneries Um, And just off the nunneries was the room in which Beckford's tomb was to be built, um, that Beckford claimed would be his uh, mausoleum. Um, And off this central octagon, then, are the rooms of this great corridor. Um, To the south, the St Michael's Gallery. Um, This is the cross-section of it. Here's the end of the St Michael's Gallery, looking down onto Bitham Lake. St Michael's Gallery, decorated with lots of stained glass, Glass that Beckford had both collected, he was a great collector of Flemish glass, um, but also glass that he'd commissioned and glass that he was commissioning to show um, the great knights of the Garter, to show great um, uh, kings of England, um, to create this space that is very much within the Gothic style, the Gothic Revival style, with this incredible tracery, vaulted ceiling. Um, of course, it's not made of stone. It's all made of papier-mâché, pl- plaster and paint. I mean, it's very, much, um, uh, it's very much within that idea of the Gothic Revival, um, uh, rather than all being carved of, of stone. It's not a building that could withstand or withhold a stone ceiling like this. So it's all made of, of plaster. Full of um, books, all this stained glass, lots of garter blue, lots of draperies in scarlets, crimsons, lots of um, ebony furniture or furniture painted black to look like ebony, all in a historicised style, all to look Jacobean or Elizabethan, all to fit in with the overall theme of this building. To the north of the octagon was the King Edward's Gallery the vaulted corridor, the oratory, <coughs> excuse me, and the sanctuary here. Um, and uh, this section of the building is, is the Lancaster Tower, in which you have the state bedroom and the billiard room um, up there. Um, so here is the King Edward's gallery, the decorative scheme of which was to show Beckford and his wife's descent from Edward III. So it has... Great portraits of the House of Latimer. It has the Latimer Cross designed into the ceiling. Um, You can just see it there. Um, And again, all these incredible pieces of furniture. In particular, this table here. And the beady-eyed among you will just see the Latimer Cross there as well. um, Which is the centrepiece of of this hall. So it's a very didactic um, uh, interior scheme. It's very much about showing Beckford's place Um, uh, within uh, British history and um, Beckford having filled this building really with with one of the greatest collections that this country ever seen um, pictures, books, immense amounts of books um, by 1822 he's £140,000 in debt and decides to sell the abbey and two thirds of its contents Um, by auction. Christie's come in, catalogue, everything. Tickets are sold for a guinea to go to this auction. It's the highlight of the social calendar of the year. People flood to um, Wilkshire to go and see the building. And then behind everyone's back, Beckford sells it for £300,000 to one person, who was um, someone called uh, John Farker, who was a uh, gunpowder millionaire. Um, And that's when Beckford moves to Bath. In 1825... Three years after he sells it, Hill Abbey falls down again for the third and final time. Falls down on the weakest part of the building, which was the earliest part of the building. Um, And uh, as Beckford tells a story about uh, the master mason on his deathbed, telling him the reason it keeps falling down is because the foundations aren't deep enough. But about six or seven years ago, um, we did a lot of work for a television programme down at Hill, where we did a geophysical survey of the land. And we know that the foundations are nearly four meters deep, so they're more than enough to keep up the tower. Um, It fell down because the top of it was made of this sort of um, mixture of of rubble and concrete, essentially. Um, And it takes the wind straight off of Salisbury Plain, so it was a very weak building. And it stands as a ruin. And this is an extraordinary picture from 1838. It stands as a ruin for 20 years. And people still can visit it. The owner is still living there, then he dies, then it's bought by someone, but the probate takes 15 years to go through. Um, so people are openly visiting the building, particularly of importance, is that people are visiting it during the competition for the new palace of Westminster. So it's hugely influential, particularly on Charles Barry's designs for the Houses of Parliament. Um, And then in 1846, it's, it's knocked down, leaving just this one bit. So the Lancaster Tower, so this bit here um Lancaster Tower the oratory and the sanctuary um and with nothing inside it's completely gutted of all Beckford period um fittings although actually you can see how the building was constructed because it well their billiard room I nearly fell through the floor so um so it, luckily it's been bought recently and it's being restored which is quite uh, nice for my own health and safety. Anyway. Um, But by that time, Beckford has moved to Bath. So in 1822, he moves to Bath. In 1823, he buys number 20, Lansdowne Crescent, the house on the right of the bridge. And at the same time, buys number one, the West Wing, now one Lansdowne Place West. And in 1824, commissions a a local architect called Henry Edmund Goodridge to design the bridge that joins those two houses together. Then in 1834, he sells one, the West Wing, and buys number 19, Lansdowne Crescent, on the other side. Um, from 1823, this is a rather homespun drawing, but um, in 1823 he starts buying up the land behind the back of Lansdowne Crescent. So he buys this piece of land here, the kitchen garden behind the mews. He buys this piece of land here, six acres on which um, Kingswood School is now built. And he buys this piece of land up here, which is now Lansdowne Cemetery. He also buys this bit over here, um, so the Hare and Hounds, if you know Lansdowne is, is there. Um, and he rents everything else and leases everything else, tells people he owns it, but he doesn't, he just rents it. Um, and he and Goodridge start again working on a great architectural project. Beginning with this gateway, which is the gateway to Beckford's Garden, it becomes known as Beckford's Ride. And um, Over the last two and a half years, I've been working quite closely with the Department for Architectural Computing in the School of Architecture here um, at the university, Um, in particular with um, uh, Professor Paul Richens and Marion Harney, and we have created an interactive computer model of this garden which includes all the buildings that used to be in the garden, and you can walk up it, which shows you what it was like before all the modern developments have taken place. Um, So you would start at this embattled gateway, beyond which Beckford would get on his horse and ride up the mile-long journey up to um, the tower at the top. And originally, this style, which is kind of a neo-Norman style, the neo-Norman revival was very short-lived, it only lasted about ten years, but Bath has a very great uh, neo-Norman building in um, Kelston. If you know the Tower House in Kelston, it's one of the key neo-Norman buildings um, of the early 19th century. Um, so originally the tower was going to be in this kind of style. And the earliest drawing we have for a tower is by Beckford um, from uh, 1823, showing very much this idea of a Norman towered keep, um, or a, a Norman building, um, battlement building. But in, in particular... Those three windows are quite important. You can see those three openings at the top. He then passes it over to Goodridge, and Goodridge comes up with this as his first design for the tower at the top of Lansdowne. Those three windows are still there, but they're increasingly becoming these sort of round headed windows that really starts to flourish um, uh, this period with with the picturesque and the Italianate. They're not quite sure about this one. They don't quite like it. They change their minds. This is the second design by Goodridge for Lansdowne Tower. The three windows have become these little arrow slit battlements and this lodger here. So that those three windows are still there, but it's increasingly looking like an Italian tower of those kind of fortified Italian hill towns um, that, that Beckford was so fond of. Um, So the idea of it being Norman revival is starting to disappear. And this is the building they start constructing in 1826 at basement level. They start building the foundations for this building. And then the ideas change. And rather than building this neo-Norman building, Beckford and Goodridge designed the building as built. So Lansdowne Tower as it was constructed between 1826 and 1827, which is a Greek revival building. Um, but it's very conveniently the Greco-Italianate. So essentially, below the, the Belvedere that you can go up to, it's an Italianate tower. Um, Italianate being the style of not Rome or the Renaissance, it's the style of the Italian countryside. It's the buildings that you see in a Claude painting. And it's very much about the picturesque at this, bu- at this point in sty- style, in form of buildings and then, as with at Hill Abbey, the building got to this height. And the, the architect's son tells us that Beckford waved his arms around a little bit and said, I want it higher. Build it higher. So on the top, Goodridge designs the lantern with the eight um, gold leaf uh, uh, cast iron columns based on the Keragic monument of Lysicrates in Athens. So based on that same source that Beckford had already had John Soane design a bed um, to look like. Um, So it's uh, a a great change for Beckford, away from the Gothic revival, but this is a style that Beckford feels much more happy with, and it's a style that he's actually much more innovative with. Um, Fonhel Abbey was an immense building, but in terms of innovation... Um, it, it wasn't as groundbreaking as, as, as this building was in the 1820s. Um, and just to, to show you that connection between the, the Greek monument, on your right you have the um, Stuart and Revvett engraving of the Couragic Monument of the Sicreties, and on the left is the Samuel Toulon drawing um, from the 1850s of um, the top of, of Lansdowne Tower that's at the Royal Institute of British Architects. So you can see where this uh, uh, inspiration has, has come from. Inside, it's fitted out with um, as much grandeur as Hill Abbey was, but on a much, much smaller scale. But what's important in Bath is that Beckford and Goodrich are designing and constructing pieces of furniture that are very, very architectural, pieces of furniture that are suited to the style of the building, um, and furniture that, for the history of furniture design at this time, is incredibly avant-garde. Um, I stress that because we've just successfully purchased a piece of Beckford furniture for £280,000 um, that's just been returned to the Tower a couple of weeks ago, so, um, which uh, if those of you that are Art Fund members, I have to thank you for, because the Art Fund gave us a rather hefty grant. Um, but it's very important in terms of its connection with Beckford's building these pieces of furniture um, and the significance that Beckford has in terms of the development of furniture design. So largely by 1828, Beckford's architectural works have been completed, although he is continually fitting out the interiors of Lansdowne Tower. Um, And then in 1834, when he sells one, the West Wing, and buys number 19 Lansdowne Crescent, he embarks on what's really his final piece of architectural work, and it's interior architecture to a certain extent, in that he commissions Goodridge to design this library for 19 Lansdowne Crescent. This is a photograph of the Lansdowne Crescent Library when it was lived in by James Lees-Milne, the writer, and it is the, other than the interior at the top of the Belvedere at Lansdowne Tower, um, it is the only other Beckford interior that still exists. Um, it's recently been restored. Um, and this is really his last great architectural work. At the same time as doing this, he has the staircase at 19 Lansdown Crescent vaulted. It's an extraordinary vaulted staircase um, at 19 Lansdown Crescent, which supposedly he does so that servants can't see him walking up and down the stairs. But, um, and it's this great move into neoclassicism, but on a much, much smaller scale than what he'd done before at Fountain Hill, because he has a much, much smaller budget. Um, And also by this time, Beckford in the 1830s is in his 70s and he perhaps doesn't have, although he always seems to have energy, doesn't perhaps quite have the energy that that drove him through Fonthill. Beckford dies then in 1844. And even though the last um, thing that occurs in terms of architecture around the tower wasn't by him, It is so closely related to him that I've had to put it in. Um, In that when Beckford dies, his youngest daughter inherits the tower and the cemetery. And she uh, sells it to a publican. And then here's a rumour he's going to turn it into a beer garden. She's so horrified she repossesses it. And she gives it to the parish of Walcott under the condition that the land is consecrated and turned into a, a, a burial ground. And that her father's tomb is reinstated up there. And that an entrance gateway is designed in memory of her father for that cemetery. So in 1848, Goodridge designs the the Lansdowne Cemetery Gateway, um, which is a great bookend to both Goodridge's career, but also to essentially Beckford's architectural ideas while he's in Bath. They go from this very pure, very abstract geometry of the Greek revival of Lansdowne Tower into this slightly more elaborate. Byzantine layered effect, almost a a historical eclecticism that you get with the the cemetery gateway that that Goodridge designs. And so um, one of the great last views that really shows the building as Beckford envisaged it, is this um, watercolour by Goodridge that's in the Victoria, and Art, uh, Victoria Art Gallery in Bath, um, which is of the cemetery when it's very young in existence. It's the cemetery um, in really uh, uh, about um, 1849. And um, still gives you a sense of this great landscape garden that this building is almost organically growing up from, which is what Beckford wanted this building to be He wanted to um, have it like one of those great Claude paintings, the key to the picturesque, Um, this great... Natural scene with a building that appears to emerge in the middle of it, which takes you right back to that very, very young encounter of the young Beckford visiting the Grand Chartus in Switzerland and the impact of the approach of that building and it appearing to emerge out of this very, for Beckford, overwhelmingly powerful natural landscape. So, hopefully, um, it's been a bit of a rush through, but hopefully. It's given you kind of an idea of how his ideas really um, evolved and some of the influences behind what he did, but also why even though he was only responsible for these two buildings, they were major buildings and hugely influential both to the progress of the Gothic revival and the progress of neoclassicism in, in England, both Hill Abbey and Lansdowne Tower. Um, the tower closes at the end of the month and for the last two weekends, if you're a Bath and North East Somerset resident, we're actually doing free tours of both the garden and the tower, looking at this idea of the landscape and the ride and looking at the model that the university and I have created um, so if you would like to come on one of those tours um, catch me afterwards and I can book you in um, But um, and if you don't um, next time you're driving on the shortcut to the motorway um, it's worth stopping off and just having a walk around this building um, and, and thinking about all these ideas that, that, that Beckford had with the buildings that he created so thank you Thank mm-hmm. you.